That's not heavy metal. 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 That is definitely not heavy metal. Welcome to another wild and woolly episode of Heavy Metal 101. Dr. John! Our first order of business is to congratulate you on your heroic and impressive academic achievement. Huzzah! Thank you very much. It feels very good to now be doctor. I think the thing that I'm most excited about is lording this title over you for the next 18 years while you work to finish your PhD. Uh, there's almost no chance it takes me more than 10 years to finish this PhD. It's very <laughs> unlikely. So... At long last, John is fully qualified to participate in our delightful Ramshackle podcast. And while I once scoffed at him for his ridiculous opinions, now I must bow, scrape, and kowtow to his every whim. It is a brave new world. It's very true, and that's why I'm very excited that here in this great holiday episode of Heavy Metal 101, we're going to talk about Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Rock! Let's go! I I just wanted to be said that John was the one who picked, you know, (laughs) Dr. John picks the themes now, and so Jingle Bell Rock it is. (laughs) Just kidding. I will still treat John like the lovable dope he is, but I am thrilled about his doctorate. It's awesome, and really and truly congratulations. Thanks. great. Um, So, today we are going to tackle a somewhat difficult subject. You may recall that way back in episode two, we attempted to establish a set of parameters we could use to define something as, quote, heavy metal. Well, now we need to wrestle with a difficult fact, which is that while those ideas really are very helpful, the honest truth is that there is no ironclad, clear-cut way of definitively determining whether a thing is heavy metal or not. And this is particularly true in the Wild West that was heavy metal in the 1970s. So in the final estimation, my own perspective is this, to each their own. And if someone feels deeply that someone is or is not a heavy metal band, that is their prerogative. That said, gatekeeping and what I call know-it-allism is a huge problem in the world of heavy metal. Of course, it's a huge problem pretty much everything these days, particularly in those fearsome and war-torn trenches of the internet. And John, I imagine it will not surprise you to note that I am involved with a wide number of online heavy metal groups. Yeah, that is genuinely not surprising. Yeah, I thought... That's how we've garnered our dozens of listeners, right? Dozens and dozens of dedicated (laughs) listeners. In those groups, one of the more common phenomena that I have come across is that some wide-eyed enthusiast goes and posts a beloved song or something about a beloved artist, and all of a sudden, an assortment of self-assured experts roll into the comment section with an array of variations on this theme. That isn't heavy metal, and you are a stupid, stinky idiot for suggesting that it is. And I don't like that. I don't like it at all. John, I assume we can agree that people are awful. Yes. One of the fundamental premises underpinning pretty much everything we do here. The goal for today is for us not to be awful. We are not going to be saying who is and who is not a heavy metal band. I think those decisions are always going to be subjective, and drawing overly rigid artificial boundaries around a genre just isn't helpful to anyone. Today, we're going to take what we had learned back in episode two, What the Hell is Heavy Metal? If you haven't heard it, I think you should listen. It's a fine episode. Judas Priest. Judas Priest, yeah. Mm -hmm. I I liked that one. Favorite band today, I believe. Yeah. 
Uh, we're going to problematize, I'm going to use a little academic language here, problematize what we discussed then by considering some bands that exist within the extremely porous border region that separates 70s heavy metal from 70s hard rock. Very ambiguous stuff. In doing so, we're particularly going to focus on quite possibly the best of those bands, certainly one of the best of those bands, and a group that will likely bring me no end of grief for daring to include in a podcast entitled Heavy Metal 101. And that band is Boston's favorite sons, the great Zen masters of the sexual double entendre, Aerosmith. Now, John, you actually seem pretty nonplussed when I told you we'd be talking about Aerosmith this week. How does it feel to be part of the problem? I mean, I don't approach Aerosmith thinking, oh, this is heavy metal, or oh, this isn't heavy metal. I approach Aerosmith thinking, oh, this is fine. <laughs> the, the old reliable, it's fine. <laughs> it's, you know, it's just, just never been for me. It, I, it's not like I'm not going to sit here and say it's terrible, but... Um, it didn't fill you with great enthusiasm. No. No, no. Judas Priest, you might say. No Judas Priest, for sure. Mm -hmm. So I'm kidding about be John being part of the problem, of course. I, I think John just doesn't like music. Yeah, that seems fair. Yeah, I, yeah. three degrees in something will do that to you. Yeah, uh, I think that's fair. <laughs> so <laughs> these are all tough issues, and everyone is entitled to feel, however they damn well please, about anything they want. This is a goddamn safe space. Here at Heavy Metal 101, we offer only problems, not solutions. <laughs> that should be our motto, don't you think? <laughs> that's going to be our new tagline. But really, we just aim to foster discussion. Before we get to Aerosmith, we're going to spend a little time establishing what will be our general taxonomic framework for organizing heavy metal bands of the 1970s and the 1980s. Nothing is more sexy than taxonomic frameworks. I'm excited. Are you excited? I love a good taxonomic framework. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, we do need to reiterate some historic context. So throughout the 1970s, the term heavy metal was used really widely and was regularly applied to bands that very few people today would call heavy metal. A few examples, Queen, Steppenwolf, ZZ Top, Blue Oyster Cult. This is crazy, right? <laughs> so you can see that obviously if you're calling Blue Oyster Cult or Queen for that matter, heavy metal, we're dealing with some real ambiguities here. Now that was then. I don't think anyone's really saying that now. But to my mind, it's important to establish there is a meaningful difference between rock bands, hard or not, that occasionally write or perform a heavy metal song. For example, possibly the very first heavy metal song was Helter Skelter by the Beatles. Certainly a song that, apropos of nothing else the Beatles did in their career, pretty heavy. I mean, that's a hard rocking song. Fair. So, a dichotomy can fairly reasonably be established between rock artists versus bands that generally do meet all our previously established genre requirements. A reminder, we had songs structured where you took distorted power chords built on the interval of the perfect fifth, played on a guitar, built into a larger recurring guitar riff, powerful and often extreme tenor singing, and dark and or antisocial lyrical content. Those sound like good parameters. Sure. A metal band like Judas Priest, which certainly fits those bills that I just listed, they still have some songs that are not heavy metal songs. Kind of the opposite thing. Uh, you might remember from Sad Wings of Destiny, John, the uh, ballad Epitaph. It was that yeah. piano ballad. Oh, it's yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. very Queen-esque, actually. Sure. 
However, the lion's share of Judas Priest's music certainly is heavy metal, does fit the bill. So if a band nearly always plays heavy metal music, it certainly seems fair to call them a heavy metal band, whereas if a band experiments very, very sparingly with heavy metal, but spends the majority of their time doing other things, it seems reasonable to call them something other than heavy metal. Okay, so we've established the fact that the Beatles are probably not heavy metal, and Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, these probably are heavy metal bands, despite the fact that none of those bands are a stylistic monolith. Does all that seem fair as uh, outliers? All of that seems fair. I want to hear the metal version of Octopus's Garden. I want to hear the metal version. I bet you we could look that up on YouTube. It probably exists, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> the bands that we need to worry about today are those who are a whole lot more ambiguous than Queen or Judas Priest. And these actually include some artists we've just recently discussed. For instance, Alice Cooper and Kiss as well as a couple bands we're going to discuss today, Aerosmith on the next episode, Van Halen. Another one of those bands would be ACDC. Look, I'd actually argue that there isn't a single well-known American band of the 1970s that could unambiguously be called heavy metal in the way we call Black Sabbath or Judas Priest heavy metal. You know, there's the band Pentagram, which some people know, some people don't. They were around in the 70s, American band, uh, doom rock, kind of like a la, very similar to Black Sabbath, but they didn't actually release a proper album until 1985. So the simple truth is that in order to accurately understand the early days of heavy metal, particularly in America, but really across the world, we do need to widen our net a bit. The Canadian music writer Martin Popoff, he often talks about the idea that one of the main factors that we can use to separate out rock and hard rock from heavy metal is the point at which bands began to leave behind the blues progressions and the boogie-woogie rhythms of traditional rock for the more modern riff-based structures of heavy metal. In a band like Kiss or Aerosmith or Black Sabbath on their first album, we can actually watch that process unfurling in real time. These groups have one foot definitively left in good old rock and roll, and another one firmly planted in a heavy metal future. So in order for us to think intelligently about metal in the 1970s, we're gonna relate it to the taxonomy that we will be using in season two, spoiler alert, when we discuss the heavy metal of the golden age, the 1980s. Okay. So here is how our system works. So we're gonna organize our bands into three categories, each of which will be based on relative heaviness, from least heavy to most heavy. We're also going to allow a couple of different sub-labels for each category, depending on the type of band within that category. I'm basing the system on my own experiences and observations, because I've listened to heavy metal for quite some time, but I'm also basing these ideas on some of what has found in the academic literature on heavy metal. So we're going to express these categories by listing some of the more famous 80s bands that most people should know, even John, that will fit neatly into the categories. And then we'll kind of reverse engineer things by naming some of the 70s bands that most influenced them creating the categories in the first place. So let's get down and dirty with our metal taxonomy. Category one. So this is the least musically heavy stuff. And this is the material which pisses off metalheads and cognoscenti to no end. This is where we say, that's not heavy metal. We'll label the music in this category with one of two adjectives. We'll call it either pop metal or glam metal. Now, a particularly large and important swath of this music in the 1980s came out of the Los Angeles glam metal scene. 
Glam is definitely a type of pop metal, but it's a really large, important type of pop metal. And it's particularly associated with a visual aesthetic that tended to be rather androgynous. A lot of spandex, a lot of makeup. Some important glam metal bands in the 1980s, I think you might be familiar with both of these, Motley Crue, Poison. I have heard those names. Great. We'll talk about both of them eventually. Now, there are other sort of light metal bands who were considerably less glammy. A lot of these actually came from other places aside from Los Angeles. I think particularly of, say, Bon Jovi, band hailing from the great state of New Jersey, and also Def Leppard, who came from Sheffield, England. These would be examples of sort of pop metal bands that aren't really glammy in any substantial way. I'd also like to note a band like Guns N' Roses. This is a band who originally emerged from the glam metal scene of Los Angeles, but kind of evolved into more generally a pop metal band, or sometimes we call them a dirty glam metal band, a little edgier and a little less synthetic than some of the other bands. Now, Frankly, all of the American metal bands from the 1970s that we're discussing in this podcast could be placed in this first sort of pop metal category. This is both because of the profound influence they had on all of the 80s bands I've just listed, and also because this is precisely the scene in which they actually existed during their own careers in the 1980s. Here's an interesting connection. Alice Cooper, Kiss, and Aerosmith all worked with the very same master pop metal song doctor, the great Desmond Child, who helped to give their 80s work its particularly accessible metal sheen. Did you know that, Desmond Child? You know I didn't. I know, I knew he didn't. You know, the same, same song doctor that worked with Bon Jovi and uh, many, many, many others to give their songs a certain style and professionalism and accessibility. There's also an especially direct connection worth noting between the shock rock of Alice Cooper and Kiss and the later glam theatricality of bands like Motley Crue. And, similarly, a direct connection exists between the drug-addled, blues-based pop metal of Aerosmith and the later generation of what, as I mentioned, are sometimes referred to as dirty glam metal bands. This would be, as I said, Guns N' Roses. Another example would be the band Faster Pussycat. You a Faster Pussycat fan? I've literally never heard of that band. Oh, man. House of Pain was a huge hit back in, the, back in the day. Good band. Good band. Not a great band, but a good band. Other 70s bands that could be placed into this category include Van Halen, who we'll talk about in our very next episode. The Scorpions, who were the first band from a non-English-speaking country to really make international waves in heavy metal. They were from Germany. And ACDC, Australia's gift to all of humanity. Any questions about Category 1, John? No. Okay. It's lighter metal, pop metal, or glam metal. Got it. Mm -hmm. Good. Oh, now, when I was a young lad, Category 2 never really had any distinct name. In fact, it was always kind of awkward to talk about this music. You'd always kind of have to search around for terminology and say, like, you know, it's, like, it's just like heavy metal, like regular old heavy metal. Nowadays, we might call these artists classic or traditional metal. So this is the middle of the road. This is just good old-fashioned straight heavy metal in the tradition of Black Sabbath and Judas Priest that we've already talked about. Now, Dio-era Black Sabbath in the 1980s, Ozzy Osbourne's solo career in the 1980s, Ronnie James Dio's solo material in the 1980s and beyond, or the great Iron Maiden, these would all be excellent representations of this middle, solid, pure, traditional approach to heavy metal. 
Another swath of English classic metal comes out of Mark II era Deep Purple. Now, you're probably not familiar with this term, Mark II, right? No. Deep Purple are a band with many eras. Mark I, they were just kind of a hippy-dippy 60s band. But Mark II, the early 70s period, when they sort of changed around some of their personnel, particularly their singer, they really started to become a very hard rock band or, depending on who you talk to, a heavy metal band. Their albums, In Rock and Machine Head, are oft cited as early metal classics. Now, I personally have some reservations about calling Deep Purple a heavy metal band, but when Deep Purple guitarist Richie Blackmore connected with the aforementioned American singer extraordinaire Ronnie James Dio in the mid-1970s to form the band Rainbow, that band became one of the definitive forebearers of this classic heavy metal style. The band Rainbow? Yeah, Rainbow. And Rainbow are actually a really nice thing because they're partially British and partially American and sort of reconciling all of this in straight ahead, really, really high quality heavy metal. Now Judas Priest, who we've already discussed here, are very much in this classic metal category as well. Easy peasy. Any questions about category two? They're just metal bands that play heavy metal. They're not too heavy. They're not too light. They're sort of our Goldilocks. Got it. Mm -hmm. The final category, number three, is our truly heavy stuff. There was a time when people called this power metal, but that term has been since co-opted for an entirely different subgenre and is more generally known now as either thrash and or speed metal. In the 1980s, this style was most clearly illustrated by the fabled Big Four. You've probably heard of all of these bands, Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. I have heard those names. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Now, we've previously met the founding fathers of this faster, heavier, and rougher approach. That would be Motorhead. Other earlier forebearers include two bands from the rough-and-tumble Detroit scene of the late 60s and early 70s, MC5, and the Stooges. I should also point out that Black Sabbath figure into this branch as well. They were a pretty diverse and dynamic band. Their song, Symptom of the Universe from 1975 Sabotage, possibly my favorite Black Sabbath album, is quite probably the first thrash metal song. It's very fast, it's very heavy. Speed metal, on the other hand, is used as a bit of a catch-all for bands that are Consistently fast and furious, more so than those traditional metal bands I mentioned, but aren't quite as heavy and particularly aren't quite as musically precise as the thrash groups, particularly the big four. When I think of speed metal, I often think of guitar shredder bands that most people don't remember, like Cacophony or Racer X. But the label was originally applied to heavy metal bands that were caught between the early 80s Nawabum era, the new wave of British heavy metal, and the birth of thrash, really Metallica's debut, Kill 'Em All. Those are bands like Accept, Anvil, Exciter, bands like that. Some of John's favorite bands. Again, never heard of any of those. Yeah, I didn't think you would have heard of any of those. Except is a fantastic band. So, we've got three branches on our metal family tree that will allow us some insight into the genre's first two decades. We're avoiding too many of the granular subgenres that are going to eventually sprout like wildfire, but I think these three branches, a couple of adjectives, all that, that will get us through these discussions. John, questions, comments, concerns? All of that seems clear. Remind me what we're doing again right now. 
now we're going to talk about a band that falls into those cracks between what most people would call hard rock and what most people would call heavy metal. We've established that heavy metal is not a monolith, that there are heavy, heavy metal bands in category three, the thrash and speed metal bands, but there are also light metal bands, bands that are much more poppy, much more at the border between hard rock and heavy metal, and frankly, much more ambiguous. And so we're gonna talk about my favorite of those bands, although I like a lot of these bands. Category one was really where I got into heavy metal. You know, that's when I was 14. I was listening to all these category one bands, including Aerosmith. So let's pause to hear some music. I, I honestly don't know if Aerosmith is a heavy metal band. I do know that back when I only listened to heavy metal, I listened to Aerosmith. And I know that they are an incredibly good band. I know that they're a massive influence on a whole generation of heavy metal bands and that they reasonably comfortably, often, if not always, fit the definition of heavy metal that we established in episode two. Maybe Aerosmith is mostly a hard rock band. Either way, the album Toys in the Attic is unbelievably great. And Round and Round, the song we're about to hear, is definitely a heavy metal tune. We've got either a hard rock band that is periodically dabbling in heavy metal, as per Round and Round, or we have a pop metal band that crossed over into hard rock superstardom, just like Bon Jovi would do in the 1980s. Either way, let's rock out to some heavy metal Aerosmith, and we can discuss this classic essential band and album just a wee bit before we say goodbye. Cue music! Hello! This is Eric here. If you are hearing this, then you are listening to a version of this podcast in which we do not have the rights to play this wonderful piece of music, Round and Round, from the Aerosmith album Toys in the Attic. I do advise you pause the podcast, check the notes, if you will, and you'll be able to find a link that will lead you directly to a recording of this song. Or you can just ignore this and keep listening. Whatever. Back to the podcast now. That song is the bee's knees. Like, I love me some Walk This Way. But I think that Round and Round is the very best damn song on this wonderful album, Toys in the Attic. So, John, what do you think of this shit-kicking heavy metal groove? If you listen to all of Toys in the Attic, this is definitely the song that stands out, not only as being different from everything else, but as being in the heavy metal vein. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the other songs, I think there's a few ambiguous ones. Toys in the Attic, I think it could be argued as a heavy metal song, but this song is much heavier, I think, than anything else on the album. The reason that it's so different, or at least in my estimation, the reason is due to an interesting fact. This is the only writing credit on this entire album for rhythm guitarist Brad Whitford. Whitford generally spends his time in the shadow of the much more famous lead guitarist Joe Perry. Now, Whitford does actually also play lead guitar on this track. It's something he does only sporadically for Aerosmith, and he also doesn't write a ton of songs. Over the course of their entire career, he only has 17 co-writing credits. Something a little bit rare, but Brad Whitford wrote my favorite song on three consecutive Aerosmith albums. On Toys in the Attic, he wrote Round and Round. On Rocks, he wrote Nobody's Fault, which is similarly both the heaviest and, in my opinion, best song on that album. And on Draw the Line, he wrote Kings and Queens. All incredible songs. And so, though 
Whitford may not get anything like the love that Perry gets, I will here and now assert that Brad Whitford, a former student of the Berklee College of Music, is Aerosmith's super secret weapon. Now, what about the rest of the album, John? What did you think of Toys in the Attic overall, this sort of Aerosmith classic? I know you're not a huge Aerosmith fan. I don't think this convinced you otherwise. That is accurate. I mean, you know, it, it, again, I'm not going to sit here and say it was bad. It didn't do it for me, but that's okay. I mean, some of it, like we were just talking about Big Ten Inch Record, that's... Uh, Fun? Uh, Funny? A, a throwback song. Mm -hmm. Bull Moose Jackson originally performed that song. There you go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that meant a lot to everyone who is listening to <laughs> a this. A lot of Bull Moose Jackson fans. I get, I get emails almost every day. Hey, when are you going to bring up Bull Moose? <laughs> that, that's for you guys. <laughs> All right, having satisfied that portion of our listening audience, uh, I, I can now upset all of our audience by saying the rest of it was just kind of, you know, it's fine. It's, it sounds like rock from this era to me. Well, I, I don't think that's entirely unfair. I mean, it is a quintessential 70s hard rock album. To me, as a quintessential 70s hard rock or heavy metal album, it's, it's just a total classic. I absolutely love it. Aerosmith had a killer run of albums. The debut was really good, but Get Your Wings 74, Toys in the Attic 75, and Rocks in 76, are all three of those are just definitively masterpieces to me. And honestly, all of the 1970s Aerosmith albums really are great. The self-titled debut is excellent, and Aerosmith are surprisingly fully formed back in 1973. And even Night in the Ruts, when the band was so such a mess. Joe Perry actually left not long into the recording. I think he recorded on something like five of the songs on that album. But damn it, it's a good album. None of, the, none of the 70s albums are less than very, very good. On Toys in the Attic, the big ticket items are obviously the two singles that you couldn't possibly miss if you ever listen to rock radio. That would be Sweet Emotion and the particularly iconic Walk This Way. Now, Walk This Way has an important history with Aerosmith. It originally made it to number 10 on the Billboard charts back in 1977, but it also led directly to the popular rebirth of Aerosmith in 1986, when Run DMC, with an important assist from Joe Perry and Steven Tyler, covered it. And actually, that version peaked at number four on the charts. And from then on, Aerosmith were an even bigger band in the late 80s and early 1990s than they had been in the 70s, which is an unbelievable comeback for any band, but particularly one that was just a completely fractious, drug-addled mess by the conclusion of the 1970s. I think that every track on Toys in the Attic is pretty great, and I most especially love the killer, flaming hot opening title track, the aforementioned Round and Round that we just heard, and the closing track, You See Me Crying, which is one of those great power ballads in Aerosmith's immense back catalog of great power ballads. Now, there is a bit of essential history on Aerosmith and the power ballad. The power ballad is a song type in which hard rock or heavy metal bands, they slow down the tempo, they layer in elements of traditional balladry, but alongside of that, they include a particularly sort of anthemic heaviness. And Aerosmith are actually often credited with inventing this paradigm in 1973. John, any sense of what song may have been the first power ballad? I mean, the answer to that question is no, but I'm hung up on the idea that Aerosmith somehow invented the power ballad. Ah. I find that hard to believe. It's certainly arguable, and I think some people might say Stairway to Heaven or something like that, but that's a pretty unique form. That song's quite different formally than a traditional power ballad. Dream On is the song in question, the great Dream On, which is from Aerosmith's first album. You, you know that song, no? Uh -huh. Yeah. You a fan of that song? Yeah. I mean, it's a power ballad, right? 
powerful, ballady, sure, huge ending, great vocal. Yeah, yeah, you know. So I guess if you like Steven Tyler's voice, that's probably fine. Yeah. Okay. You like my voice though. Oh yeah. yeah. That's why we're here. That is why we're here. So you can sit and listen to my voice. <laughs> You're welcome, John. Thank you. Excuse me, Doctor John. Thank you. So I think it's one of the great songs, but I adore Aerosmith, so that comes rather naturally to me. Anyhow, Toys in the Attic, the album, peaked on the charts at number 11, but since then, it has sold a cool 9 million copies in the U.S. alone, and is widely regarded along with the follow-up album, Rocks, from 1976, as among the band's finest work. Toys in the Attic is my personal favorite of the 1970s album. Let's wrap this whole thing up with just a few general details about this maybe heavy metal, maybe hard rock, but certainly fine, fine band. So who are Aerosmith, anyhow? The classic and current lineup of the band is Steven Tyler on the lead vocals, Joe Perry, lead guitar, Tom Hamilton, bass, Joey Kramer, drums, and the official VIP of this episode of Heavy Metal 101, Brad Whitford, on the rhythm guitar. Now, the band formed in 1970 in Boston, a locale with which they will always be associated, but this is despite the fact that only Perry and Whitford were actually from the state of Massachusetts. Now, John, you actually might be interested to know this. Steven Tyler, who hailed from New York City, grew up in a family with a very strong classical music tradition. His father, Victor Tallarico was a concert pianist and a music teacher who had attended Juilliard and who actually turned down the opportunity to play in the Glenn Miller Band in order to stay closer to home with his family. Huh. Yeah, pretty cool, right? And actually Tyler's grandfather, whose name I'm not quite sure of, was dun, 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 a conductor. Well, look at that. Yeah, that's very fun. So fun. I think it's fun. So, John, do you want to know a fun nickname commonly associated with Aerosmith? Of course. America's greatest rock and roll band. Wow, that's like the Cowboys claiming to be America's football team. <laughs> the Miami Dolphins are America's football team. Everybody knows that. <laughs> but even though I think superlatives like America's greatest rock and roll band are always a bit silly, uh, I can't really refute it. I mean, Aerosmith is a band that has managed to have massive success over 50 years now and has sold over 150 million albums to date. And so those things may or may not make you the greatest rock and roll band, but it is pretty hard not to be impressed with all that. Are they in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? That's obviously the metric we should be using to measure here. <laughs> that is the metric we should be using. <laughs> yes, Aerosmith are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and therefore are... Uh, I don't, I don't know what adjective to apply. Hall of Famous. Are you proud of that? <laughs> you look pretty proud of that. <laughs> Copyright 2021. <laughs> now, particularly special is how Aerosmith somehow managed to come back from near-complete oblivion at the end of the 1970s and reemerge as a massively successful 1980s eh, kind of dirty glam metal band on their own terms with their second-period classic albums like 1987's Permanent Vacation and 1989's Pump of my personal favorites. This period clearly situated them within the pop metal world, and those of us who first came to know them at that time are going to associate them with heavy metal. And speaking for myself, I mean, I came to know the 70s material quite a bit later. So Aerosmith always was clearly pop metal to me, 
And so that's the lens through which I perceive their 70s work. And I know not everyone will agree, and I'm okay with that. They definitely live on the subtle borderland between hard rock and heavy metal, and I have got no beef with anyone categorizing them however they damn well please. Either way, I do think we all can and should acknowledge their tremendously impressive career, discography, and particularly their influence on the next generation of heavy metal bands. John, can we do that? Yes. All right! This is delightful. Any final thoughts for our friends out there in podcast land? I mean, I have one question that might just be opening a a can of worms we don't want to, but, I mean, do these artists not make any effort to make their own statements as to what genre and or type of music they create and perform? That is a very important question, and it does does open up a little bit of a can of worms, because the simple truth is there are definitely a lot of artists that the fans would consider heavy metal that specifically say, we are not a heavy metal band, we are a rock band. The perfect example is Motorhead. Motorhead, who are quite a heavy, heavy metal band, Lemmy always said, we're not heavy metal, we're rock and roll. And they opened every show with We're Motorhead and We Play Rock and Roll. Most of the pop metal bands, not so much the glam metal bands, but the pop metal bands have at some point or other disowned the heavy metal label. A band like Def Leppard was very, very poppy, but who I certainly grew up with as being a light metal band. Joe Elliott from Def Leppard has explicitly said, we were never a heavy metal band, we were always like a rock and roll band or a hard rock band or whatever. So I would say that artists are uniquely unreliable there because there's a real commercial incentive to be a rock band Mm. rather than a heavy metal band, which has a much narrower fan base. Yeah, I mean, if you're a rock band, you can end up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, if you're a heavy metal band, everyone's like, screw you, Judas Priest isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, they're a very good band. It's a very good question. I would say don't listen to the artists. They're uh, always bullshitting in that area. Got it. Yeah. Okay, then. So, John, could you remind the good folk of how they might contact us in order to complain about your incessant negativity or my cloying and irrational enthusiasm? If you would like to write to us about my negativity or Eric's positivity, uh, you can reach us at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. You can also go to Anchor and click on the little link thing, and you can leave a verbal voicemail thing directly insulting John for pooping all over your favorite band. They should do that, right? Absolutely. Thank you for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time on another sleazy and double entendre-laden episode of Heavy Metal 101.